This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Well, here's a good question. Why would anyone choose to buy and hunt with a 223 Remington instead of a 6.5 Creedmoor? <laughs> well, I think plenty of 6.5 Creedmoor haters have a pretty good answer for that, but we'll see if we can't come up with a few other options on this episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome again. I have a patron wondering about this 223 over 6.5 Creedmoor. I suspect when he is looking at the performance of the 6.5 and the 223 and noticing the fairly wide discrepancy between bullet weights and velocities, why would anyone choose the smaller, lighter, potentially less effective 223? So let's just read really quickly what he wrote me. Hi, Ron. Uh, I sure wish I lived in your part of the country where the foothill high mountains were and it was a drier climate. Well, you're welcome to move here, Russell, but I can't help you beyond that. <laughs> but here's his question. Anyway, can you think of a particular scenario where someone would choose a 223 Remington instead of a 6.5 Creedmoor, assuming that they're going to be just shooting factory ammunition? Well, it's a broad question, Russ. Um, but I think. A lot of the choice would, would be based on anticipated recoil and fear thereof. Um, and maybe it's a small shooter or a new shooter or a young shooter. And a lot of great reasons to shoot a 223. And just the fact that it is such a light recoiling thing, um, I think really makes a difference. But then some people would choose it because perhaps they mostly want to be hunting smaller animals. Maybe they're going to be looking for uh, coyotes and foxes. and They want the best optimum pelts that they can get. Uh, someone may appreciate the better velocity from the 223. Um, so, yeah, it's just really hard to say. It's personal preference. But I suspect you're asking as kind of a general purpose deer hunter, pronghorn hunter, why one would select it. And I think I'd have to agree with you that the, the 6.5 Creedmoor pushing bullets from, oh, let's say 120 grains up to 140, 143 grains, that seems a more sensible option for deer hunting cartridge. When you look at deer cartridges over the years, that 140 grain range is just about smack in the center of good performance on whitetail, mule deer, pronghorn, similar side animals. And you see that in the 270, 130 grain bullet, 150 grain bullets. A um, little heavier when you're into the 30s, but got to remember... Way back, we, of course, had much larger diameter cartridges coming out of the black powder era and the muzzle loaders and stuff. took quite a while for us to realize that with higher pressures uh, available in bottlenecked cartridges with smokeless powder, we were able to get more energy in our bullets by pushing them faster, that we no longer required the mass and the diameter of the bullets to get the same terminal effect. So we went from the 
50s and the 45s down to the 30s. And that was kind of a standard for a long time because of, well, the 3040 Craig. Uh, I was a U.S. military cartridge for a few years. And then the 3030 Winchester was extremely popular. It still is for whitetail hunting. But the 30-06 is what really solidified the 30 calibers in the U.S. And then you went down to the 308 to lighten it up a little bit, still sticking with that bigger diameter bullet. But in recent years, and gosh, I mean, I really shouldn't say recent because it kind of started with that 270 in 1925. And when that came out with a narrower diameter bullet, even, in higher velocities, then folks started to realize this is darn defective on deer, so why not? A little less recoil, a little faster bullet, shoots a little flatter, and then you end up with, oh my goodness, just think of all the different 7 millimeters and the 6.5s and the 25s, 25 out 6, 257 weathery magnum. Boy, there's just a lot of options. All of it's pretty much shown us that a bullet weight in that 100 to 150 grain range is really all you need if it's the right bullet and you're a good shooter and you put it in the right place and et cetera, et cetera. And the same thing now applies with the 6.5 Creedmoors uh, and all the other 6.5s that have suddenly come into prominence uh, when they used to be fairly rare, but you know, they're not a huge step down from the 27s. Um, and they're obviously a little bit larger diameter than the 25s. 25 caliber is the 257s. And then you go to the 6.5s, which is really the 264s. So there's just a tiny difference there. And then the 24s have been really successful too, the 243 and the different 6 millimeters. So yeah, yeah that's a great well-proven range of throwing a bullet somewhere from 2,700 to 3,000 feet per second in that 140 grain. Uh, weight range. But the 223 has proven to be remarkably effective with good chest shots inside of, say, 200 yards on deer. And because it has that minimal recoil and to a large degree a softer report from firing it, people can just shoot it so precisely and so accurately. I just hear from dozens and dozens of folks every year who just dote on the 223 and have perfect success taking whitetails with it. So there's probably the reason. So a good question. Glad you asked it, Russ. Um, I don't know if my answer is exactly right. Let me know, folks, if you've got some better ideas of why someone would choose a 223 over a 6.5 Creedmoor. <laughs> I know some of our uh, fans here would uh, choose anything over the 6.5 Creedmoor. They just absolutely hate that cartridge. And it's really not the cartridge they hate so much as some of the folks who, who popularize it and just can't stop talking about it. <laughs> it drives folks nuts. Hey, here's another one from a patron. This is Jeff. And he's asking about copper bullets. They're getting to be quite popular now. They've been around for quite a while, since the late 80s, and have proven remarkably effective. But, of course, hunters are traditionalists, and we're just not eager to make changes. If something works, why change it, right? Um, but there are uh, good reasons to be trying these new bullets. Um, one of them is environmental because of the potential lead poisoning from critters eating the particles from the lead and stuff. And the other reason is simple performance. Uh, they're they're wonderful at what they do with terminal performance. So let's just see what Jeff has to ask about them. Um, let's see. I'm going back to Zimbabwe in October for Cape Buffalo hunt. Now the last buffalo I shot was with a 375 H and H with a 300 grain TSX bullet. That's the Barnes all copper uh, TSX bullet. It took two shots, 20 minutes apart, to do the job. So he doesn't say anything about where he hit it on that first shot, but he got the buffalo. Well, I have since had that 375 H&H rifle rebarreled to a 416 Remington. So he's stepping up a diameter a little bit here. I called Barnes to see that what their recommendation would be because they make a 400 grain TSX and a 350 grain TSX and in that 416 caliber. They were pretty non-committal because one guy there recommended the 400 grain because of the penetration and the other guy recommended the 350 because it has a little more velocity, about 200 feet per second more. I know when I shoot a whitetail, I can drop down a couple of weights with my mono metal bullets. So what do you think? A 350 TSX uh, or the TTSX, will that be enough? I'm sure it will be under 100 yards. Thanks. What's your opinion, Jeff? 
And this is why I wrote back to Jeff and said, hey, I agree with that lighter bullet, higher velocity idea. Barnes and similar copper bullets penetrate so well that you can routinely step down one to as many as three weight classes and get the same or better penetration. Seeing the same, I'm seeing the same with the hammer, shock hammer bullets. Their 270 grain turned my whole hum 375 H&H into a more dramatic killer. I'm trying them on elephant next month. So I am going to be waiting for Jeff's report when he gets back from his Cape Buffalo hunt just to see what he did and how it worked. And of course, I will report on my success or the lack thereof with a 270 grain bullet on my elephant hunt. That sounds like a crazy light bullet. The 375 H&H is fairly light uh, for a, an elephant cartridge anyway. I mean, they're kind of the bottom, the start, if you're going to be hunting dangerous game in some African countries, that's the minimum cartridge. And then you go up from there. And most professional hunters will work with a 416 or a 450 or something else. But there are plenty of elephants been taken with a 375. It's just a matter of using the right bullet and placing it correctly so that you can hit the brain. Um, and or the heart. Heart shots are, are way safer to take, and I'm still debating on which to do. We're probably right down to the last second before I'll decide. But I've talked with a, a PH over there who has worked with that 270 grain all copper bullet from Hammer in a 375, and he says it does just, he likes it better than traditional solid bullets for brain shots and elephants. Says it's just got more shock to it and works just as well. So, uh, that's kind of a recommendation you have to trust. All right, let's see what else we have from the team. They have put together a bunch of them. Oh, and I see some of them are, are written out here for me. Let me just see what we have. Oh, Russian ammo. No. Hunter. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This is something different from someone called Hunt Honest. They say, as, uh, I was hoping you could talk about how a respectable hunter takes a certain amount of time and patience to glass their game for specific qualities such as family proximity, pregnancy, health, range, possibility of a follow-up shot. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, could you explain this stuff in more detail? Thanks, your friend in Montana. Um, yeah, that's something you don't hear very often, but family proximity at first i thought family so okay yeah i guess you could say that a doe or a cow has a fawn or a calf and that's family of course the males have no idea of family <laughs> uh they're not taking care of the young ones but yeah that's that's an, a, a, an important consideration not so much for antlered game because biologists have proven over the years that once a fawn or calf is i think Correct me if I'm wrong, but about six months, they're probably able to make it without parental attention. You know, it's not, it, it's like birds. Let's say take a, a nesting robin, a common bird. It has to feed those little chicks in the nest until they're able to fly, fledge, and then leave. And then they still have to hang around and feed them until they learn to feed themselves out in the wild. So there's quite a bit of parental care required. Whereas a fawn or a calf needs its mother for nursing and to help defend it to a degree from predators. And they will be surprisingly effective at either leading a predator away from that little helpless fawn or trying to drive it away. And I have seen uh, both whitetails and pronghorns chasing coyotes during the spring fawning season. So they will do that. But by the time fall rolls around, it's kind of an 
every man for itself or every deer for himself or herself. And it's just that it's not so much that animals are selfish, although I guess really they are. Because it's if you don't look out for yourself and make sure you survive, you're not going to be able to reproduce the next year for the next generation to survive. And you'll see this in the winter when a a mother deer with still a fawn with her will strike at it to get to the food. You see that on the winter range a lot. And you think at first, at least I did, was like, well, that's kind of a cruel thing to do to your own offspring. You know, most humans would say, feed the kid first and we'll get by. But those deer know that if they don't make it through the winter, they're never going to have more fawns. And they will literally rear up and smack that fawn to get it away from their food. And I think that's why it's possible to to take out a deer with a fawn in November or December and really not reduce the fawn's chances for survival. It's a hard biological reality, but there it is. But I can understand someone saying, I'm not going to shoot that doe with a fawn by your side just because human nature being what it is and you feel sorry for it or something, or you think it really is going to make a difference in the survival of both of them. No problem with that. More power to you. Um, But the other ideas like pregnancy, you can pretty much figure that after the rut, virtually every deer, pronghorn, antelope, moose, you name it, is pregnant. I mean, that's their whole goal is to stay, keep that reproduction cycle going because that's the only thing that keeps that population up. So I don't think you need to be too concerned about that. If Fish and Game is saying you need to shoot X number of does, um, it really doesn't take into account whether or not they are pregnant at the time. Um, So uh, health, yeah, that's worth looking at. Yeah, especially in this day and age with some of the diseases in wildlife. I mean, who, who wants to shoot an animal that is sickly? And you're probably not going to want to eat the meat. You probably wouldn't trust it anyway. But can you tell if it's sickly? I haven't been able to see if a deer has contracted, say, CWD, uh, chronic wasting disease, that brain wasting disease. You've got to do a lab test to find that out, except for the later stages when they're wandering around and don't have full body control and all that. And so that's something you could look for. Why take a deer out that's acting unnormal in that regard? Uh, Similar things with, say, raccoons and different animals that might have rabies. If they're acting out of character, you probably don't want to be having anything to do with them. Um, Possibility of a follow-up shot. Now, that is a good idea. That and the range. Obviously, most of us look at the range and say, I can't take that shot. It's too far away. I am not that good, or the wind is blowing too hard for me to take that far of a shot. I just really can't predict where that bullet's going to get blown. All those things are part of being a good hunter and a responsible hunter. So yes, know your effective shooting range for the conditions under which you're hunting. And then that follow-up shot, I like that a lot because there are times when an animal is in a position where if you shot and wounded it and couldn't immediately have a follow-up shot to finish it, it could escape. Let's say it's just on the edge of uh, a cliff or a steep canyon where it could dive down and be out of sight. By the time you got over there, it could be gone. You couldn't get a follow-up shot versus one out in the open in the flats. You've got plenty of time there. So think about that. Is it heavy cover they're going to escape into? Do you have time for a second follow-up shot? All good things to consider. Thanks so much for asking that stuff. Now, I think I'm going to save some of these. I see there's quite a few of them um, with some ideas about penetration. A while back, I did something on a 220 Swift with a 48 grain varmint bullet shooting through armor plating from, I think, a half track in World War II. And at the same time, a 30-06 bullet that was built by the military as armor piercing only dented it. The question being, how can a lightweight little 22 caliber bullet penetrate that steel while the heavier 180 grain 30-06 bullet could not. Um, And I got some good answers back here from a lot of people, but I think before I start diving into them, I want to put them together so I don't get redundant here and see if we can make some sense out of it. So stay tuned in the future. Probably the next uh, podcast we do, we'll dive into that and try to figure out how this is happening. Meantime, we're going to go to the questions that the team has pulled up. And the first one comes out of Indiana. Shane asks us something. 
First, he says, hey, I enjoy your podcast. I'm a truck driver, and I listen while driving along. I hear that fairly often from truck drivers, and I'm glad to have you guys listening in. Um, I have a question about wildcatting. Has anyone tried shortening a 4570 to 1.8 inches for a Midwestern deer hunt? Or is there just not enough gain over a 44 Remington Magnum? I shoot most of my whitetails with a Henry 44 mag, and I've had great success with clean kills up to 125 yards. So what is your pick for the longest range hand load for a 44 rem mag? Thanks, Shane. Well, Shane, there's a 4570 that was shortened. Ah, I'm forgetting what it was. 475 line ball, I think. He shortened it, and I think it's under or at 1.8 inches. Uh, but that would be the only wildcat I could think of. Um, but as for the 44 mag performance, of course, you have to consider whether you're shooting it in a handgun, usually a revolver, 6-inch barrel, 8-inch barrel, or are you chambering in a rifle? And you said you had the Henry 44, so you probably have an 18-inch barrel in that. Maybe they have a 20. That's going to give you more velocity. So you're going to get a lot better long-range performance out of that because you're starting it off faster. Exactly how much, I don't know until I'd work up some hand loads in that particular barrel, but I think you're probably looking at at least 200 feet per second faster uh, than in a short-barreled handgun. So what will that give you for distance? You really need to get onto a ballistics calculator to study that stuff. And I think most of our listeners could benefit from this. I get a lot of these questions and it just strikes me as odd that people don't look this up until I realize not everybody understands ballistic calculators or has used one. And I've been using them for so many decades now that it's just second nature for me. So here's what you'll want to do. Go online and do a search for ballistics calculators. And I always say that the one that I use most often is shooterscalculator.com. And another one is JB, um, JB, 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 JBM calculators. And then Hornady has a pretty good one on their site. They got some ballistic calculators that are pretty uptown. And then once you get on one of those, just study a little bit of the how-to information and learn how to start entering in all the, the details that you need to find out what those bullets are going to do. You have to add your, your velocity and that would be the muzzle velocity, and then the bullets BC, those are the two biggest deals. You can add in the wind direction and the wind speed and a lot of other things, and you can get all the details you want about your bullet's trajectory. So you're going to know how much drop you get, how much drift you get, how much remaining energy, how long it takes the bullet to get there, and all that fun stuff. And that's how you'll be able to tell what your 44 mag options are because there's so many different bullets with so many different shapes and they're all going to change things. So I really can't sit here and tell you what I think you should be using for the optimum performance in your 44 Henry. So uh, sorry, I couldn't give you a slam dunk answer on that one, Shane, but I think in the long term, you will be better served by learning to use one of those bullets calculators. It's the old uh, teach a man to fish versus giving him a fish. You want to be hungry <laughs> or do you want to find your own food? <laughs> All right. Thanks for asking that, Shane, and uh, happy trucking, man. Here's uh, Daryl from Michigan. Say, why don't you do a video on eye dominance? Seems to me I covered eye dominance in a recent, well, maybe I didn't. But it comes up fairly often, so there are always new people listening in, so there's no reason why we can't do something. Let's just see what else he says. I am right-handed, but I'm left-eye dominant. Ah, that's why he's concerned. So I shoot left-handed with long guns and bows. All right, that's a smart plan. Pistols and revolvers automatically line up with my left eye with either hand. Keeping both eyes open has its advantages. Thanks. Yay, Daryl, that line right there, keeping both eyes open has its advantages, is absolutely right. And too many of us shooters don't understand that. We always do the one-eye squint thing, and you see it so often. People are squinting and looking down. And yes, that helps a lot of folks get their sights lined up, especially open sights. But you no longer have the advantage of binocular vision. So years ago, when I was a typical shooter that did the old squint thing, aiming, and I heard about this idea of keeping your eyes open, I, I tried it, and I persisted to the point where I could keep my eyes open and see and shoot accurately with both eyes open. And that enables me to maintain my triangulation for depth perception, 
while I'm shooting and also gives me a better perspective on the whole thing out there. Sometimes I'll see something in my peripheral vision of my non-shooting eye that causes me to hold back on the shot like another deer or something's coming into the picture or something uh, bigger is coming into the picture. <laughs> so I think it's worth doing this. Learn to shoot with both eyes open and with I think a low power scope is the easiest way to do it. Uh, 2x, 2.5x, there's really not much difference in the power between whichever eye is seeing things. So you can keep both eyes open. It's easy to get that crosshair on the target because obviously the eye that sees the, the reticle, the crosshair, is looking through the scope and that's where you need to focus your target shoot, hold on to the get the animal, that kind of thing. So uh, then as you get better and better at that, you can go up in power to 4x, 6x, and next thing you know, you're keeping both eyes open at some ridiculously high magnifications. And I can remember back when I got my first 10 power scope, it didn't take long before I was keeping both eyes open and getting a target in the viewfinder of that, well, viewfinder into the scope under the reticle at 10 power. And that included jackrabbits that I was jumping at 30 yards and shooting. So it's a, it's a nice skill to have once you've developed it. So <clears throat> what about this eye dominance thing? At the risk of being redundant, for those of you who have heard it before, most of us have a dominant eye. That's the one that that's really seeing things and directing an aim. Now by an aim, I guess I, I always describe it as your finger being the front side of your or the scope reticle, but that's your aiming point. So if you take your finger and you point it at something, and I'll just use the camera lens here right in front of me. For those of you who are listening, I'm just pointing with both eyes open, finger out at arm's length, point it up a little bit so that I'm using the top of my fingernail, and I'm putting it right under the lens of that camera. Now, if I close my left eye, I see that my finger is right under the lens where I'd seen it when I had both eyes open. That means my right eye was doing the focusing and aiming, not my left. If I close my right eye, suddenly my finger jumps about a foot away from the camera to the right. So now if I keep my right eye closed, I can aim with my left. And if I open my right eye, close my left, now my finger is on the left side of the lens. That's how you determine eye dominance. So just try that. Finger under your target, both eyes open, close one eye, see if it jumps or not. If it's a jumping one, wrong eye. Okay, now once you've done that, you've got to decide how you're going to shoot. Daryl here decided he was going to shoot uh, left-handed with his long guns and his bows because he was left eye dominant. Uh, most of us who have trained with the wrong side, <laughs> you're a right-handed shooter, but you've really got a left eye dominant, you can overcome that with a scope. That makes it so much easier because it, it makes a larger image and that forces your right eye to dominate. And uh, that can be successful, but you may have to close the left eye. With open sights, most of these left eye dominant people do have to close the left eye in order to sight. So there goes my whole plan about keeping both eyes open. But again, I think with training, you might be able to overcome that as well. But the easiest solution is pretty much the one Daryl chose. When you're just getting started, you might as well learn to shoot from the side that is eye dominant. All right, Gerard from Canada is asking something about cartridges and bullets. Hey, it's the South African from Canada again. I almost caught up with um, all of your 2022 podcasts. I listen to episode every morning while taking the dog Gunner for a walk. Well, great. I hope uh, you and Gunner are both enjoying those, Gerard. So here's the question. What is the advantage or disadvantage of a belted Magnum cartridge? It's my understanding that the 375 H&H is the father of most of the belted Magnums we see today. But we also need, or we also see non-belted magnums with the same pressures and performances than the older belted magnums. So was that belted case designed for pressure or headspace back in the days or what? Thanks, Gerard. Gerard, happy South African from Canada. You got it, buddy. The belted case was designed for headspacing. Has nothing to do with strengthening the case for higher pressures. Uh, and that's why you see non-belted cases outperforming some of the older magnums. So it's not a pressure issue. The belt is just there to headspace. And I think by now, most of us know headspace, but once again, new folks always coming on board. So headspacing is what on the case 
stops it from going too far into the barrel or the chamber of the barrel. The cartridge fits into a chamber that is its size exactly, like your your foot into a shoe. Uh, so something has to stop it from going too far forward and jamming your toes against the front of the shoe. And that's usually the rim on a rimmed cartridge, like a 30-30. Um, but on a bottleneck cartridge, it's that shoulder up front where it shrinks down to the neck diameter. That slams into a wall inside of the chamber. With these belted magnums, they would actually use that little bit of a belt at the back. And there's a corresponding ring inside of the chamber that that slams into. That holds the cartridge in just the right position so that the firing pin strikes it with enough pressure to set it off and everything works. Okay, good question there, Gerard. Let's go to Wisconsin where Mark asks, my buddy's 14-year-old son asked me, if I were 14, what deer rifle would I buy? He has been using a borrowed 308 with Hornady Custom Light Ammo. And he grew six inches in the last year. <laughs> Needs a new rifle. My first thought was a Savage Axis II and the most expensive scope you can afford. But then I saw on the internet, oh, it has to be true. This is what he said in parentheses. That has to be true. <laughs> Some Savage Axis IIs with barrel rust issues. Now, after days down the rabbit hole called the internet or the web, I've changed my thoughts. Main question, what are your thoughts on a stainless barrel? Any disadvantages? I have a couple of non-blued barrels, and I told myself no more blued barrels for me. 20-plus years ago, high-quality optics were $1,000, but now I believe things are different. When I started out recommending a gun for my youngster to... Uh, oh, I don't, I don't know, that doesn't make sense. Let me, uh, re, if I can rephrase this. I'm going to retire my Savage 99E I bought at age 16 and get something different. So what are your thoughts on a Tika 3X light with a stainless barrel in 308 and a Vortex Viper HS 2.5 by 10 by 44 scope? Whew. Thanks for your time and willingness to share your knowledge. I got a little confused here. I'm sorry about that, Mark, but I think we've gone from what should the 14-year-old get to what should you get? But um, let's see if we can address all of this. So you, first you're asking, is the Savage Axis II have rust problems? I, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me because the Savage Axis II is made out of uh, steel, the same as every other barrel. You're either using a chrome molly steel or stainless. I would have guessed that the Savage Axis II has a chrome molly barrel, which is just your blue barrel. So the only reason it would rust more than anything else is that you haven't kept it protected with wax or oil or something. So that's not a big one. But now let's talk about stainless barrels. So is there advantage in a stainless barrel over a standard chrome molly blue barrel? Well, obviously you're onto it. There is because it's less prone to rusting. Stainless steel doesn't absolutely not rust, but I think it has a high enough chromium content that it minimizes the rust. So you can use it in rough weather and wet weather and not have to worry about it so much. But you do still need to clean it, protect it, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the better advantages there, I think, is that internally it's less likely to rust. And that's where it's a little more difficult to maintain because we're not always seeing the bore inside. We're looking at the outside. So I would, I do like stainless barrels. And a lot of people will say, well, are they... Do they last as long as the chrome mollies or are they inherently more accurate? And when I research that sort of thing, I find yo, yay and nay on both sides of it. I don't think there's one absolute. Um, that's why they continue to make and use standard chrome molly barrels to win all sorts of accuracy competitions. But at the same time, they will use stainless ones. So, yeah. The other thing, though, nowadays is that you can get all these wonderful external finishes on barrels that protect them. So even though it's not a stainless barrel, it's got some kind of a Cerakote type finish on the outside and they're pretty much impervious to weather. You still have that bore issue. There are chrome lined barrels are not all that common, but it's a little more difficult to manufacture a precise chrome lined barrel that shoots really well. But by golly, if you find one, there's uh, the advantage there. Obviously you have extremely high chromium in that barrel. It's a chromed barrel. So those aren't going to rust. So that should address the rust issue. Um, now getting to your optics, um, two, two and a half to 10 power by 44 scope. 
in Vortex Viper. Vortex, of course, makes a lot of great hunting scopes. They've done a wonderful job over the last, oh gosh, it's probably been 25, 30 years now that they've been making rifle scopes. American company started up in Wisconsin. And so good folks working there and they're serious hunters. They know what they're doing and they're building some really well-respected scopes. I reviewed some years ago when they were just getting started and I found that they were remarkably sharp and well-made and durable. And I think the Viper line is one of their higher. They've got, you know, your starter line and they go up in quality through various categories. But that one I think is getting up towards the top of the line. Not really sure anymore. But I do like the Power Ranger selecting there. 44 millimeter objective up front, I think, is a great option. So many guys want to go with a 50 or even bigger, thinking that it's really going to give them a vast increase in light coming into that scope. And that is not necessarily true. There's not that much difference. And for most of the hunting that we do, there's more than enough light at a 44 millimeter objective, even at 10 power. As you put your power up, on a scope when you dial from two up towards 10. The higher you go, the less light that gets through. You're shrinking what's called the exit pupil. And that's a little bitty circle of light that comes out of the eyepiece. When you hold a scope out at arm's length and you look into the eyepiece, you'll see a little circle in there. The diameter of that circle is the exit pupil. And it has to match the diameter of your pupil in order for you to get all of the light that is going through that scope. If it's bigger than your pupil, that extra ring of light is just bouncing off your iris. So you don't take advantage of it anyway. If it's smaller than your pupil, yes, then you're not getting as much light as you could take in. But in daylight, your, your pupil's probably shrinking down to 2.5 millimeter. And at 10 power in a 44 millimeter objective, your scope's exit pupil is going to be 4.4 millimeter more than big enough for daylight right down to sunset now as it gets nearly dark now your pupil is expanding bigger and bigger and it might get as wide as seven millimeter but gee at 10 power to get a seven millimeter exit pupil out of the eyepiece of your scope your objective diameter would have to be 70 <laughs> not 50 and the other thing is most scopes a uh, good optical quality scope with high contrast if you've got a 4.4 a millimeter or even a four millimeter uh, exit pupil at a half hour after sunset to even as much as an hour after sunset you can pretty much still see the reticle on the target at 100 yards this is all fairly variable obviously but the point is there's just not that much of a big advantage by going to the bigger optical objectives on your scope so i think you're just right in the ballpark on a good compromise scope for general use right there all right i hope mark that that answered some of your questions i'm sorry about getting a little bit confused about the uh the 14 year old and what's what's your rifle to get but um write me back if i didn't quite get it right Tommy from Indiana, thanks for sharing your wealth of knowledge over the years, Ron. I find that your articles and videos are very informative. Thank you for that, Tommy. I have put uh, this information to use many times. Now, my current question is this. Midwest deer hunting with a 243 Winchester. I chose this round to introduce my grandchildren to deer hunting, but I'm having a heck of a time deciding on ammunition. I'm basically looking for something that'll do business at 20 yards out to 200 yards. Might be a tall order, but I thought I'd ask for your opinion. Thanks again, Tommy. Tommy, this is a short order. <laughs> I want to be a short order cook on this. Burger and fries! <laughs> no, that 243 Winchester for deer in the Midwest, yeah, you've got so many great bullet options. The, the go-to slam dunk is the 100 grain. And you can go with 100-grain cup and core, 100-grain bonded, 100-grain, uh, well, they probably don't make 100-grain coppers, but it's 80 to 85-grain copper. I have used 75-grain Barnes TSX copper bullets and taken white-tailed cleanly with one shot. And uh, yeah, it's going to do the job. And I've had a lot of luck with fairly frangible varmint bullets on whitetails. I know I'm not supposed to say that because the standard has always been don't use varmint bullets on big game because they might break up and cause a flesh wound before they reach the vitals. And that can happen. It's true. But there are so many people who are precision shooters who do this and do it successfully that it's, it's just not fair to say never do it. 
And I have tried this many times over the years using fairly frangible bullets, sometimes as light as 58 grains in a 243. And if you slip that bullet behind the shoulder, it has enough integrity to get in the lungs and the heart. And as I've said before, when you see the those um, whack the tubes, the ballistic gel blocks that they shoot into, you usually see a pocket of damage when that little varmint bullet goes in about two inches or so and then sort of explodes. It gets torn apart by all that tension and friction. That creates kind of a little bombshell crater right there. And you can imagine what that does to the heart lungs. Takes a deer out quickly. But by golly, you've got to get it behind that shoulder because sometimes if you just hit a major bone and muscle mass on the surface, that's about all the farther it's going to get. And that's why it's kind of irresponsible to use those varmint bullets. And I would say with new young shooters, anybody just starting out, the excitement of that first shot. Gosh, when I was probably on my 10th year, I was still prone to getting a little too excited with buck fever. That's where your heavier bullets are going to be a better option because they'll punch through the big mass of muscle and bone and get to the vitals. So I would say go with a 85 to 100 grain bullet and and get one. Oh, I I just think most of the time your cup and core bullets are going to be okay in a 243. Your velocities are usually 3,000 to 3,100 feet per second, and that's getting on the edge of tearing up those cup and core bullets a little bit, but generally not. So I don't think you need to go with a really serious control expansion bullet. But again, I've had great luck with the coppers, so you can try that. All right, I hope that works for you. Oh, what's this from Texas? Radical experiments. Let's see what this gentleman has to say. Burnin from Texas. Mr. Spomer, yesterday I sent a question asking about radical experiments in barrel twists. Like if any wildcatter had ever made a one-in-one twist barrel or experimented with really low ratios. Fascinatingly, a video about just that crazy cartridge came up on my YouTube, and I wanted to follow up with a note even though I only watched one video about it. It's the new 8.6 Blackout, and the barrel has an insane one-in-three twist. Crazy! (laughs) And it's amazing! And it's fascinating! Exclamation points behind every one of those. (laughs) So, I hope that someone will lend you one of those 8.6s with which to do some videos or a blog. Thanks again for all the things I've been learning since I started watching your channel. Sincerely, Vernon. Well, Vernon, I appreciate that. And yeah, it's a great idea. I hope somebody loans me one of those 8.6 blackouts. That would be fun to experiment with. Here's the deal with that 8.6 blackout. This may sound really weird on many levels, but things are changing in the shooting world. And Fast Twist is one of them. A one in three twist, you know what that means, folks? In three inches of barrel, you get one complete twist of the rifling. That is fast. Traditionally, you're looking at one in 10 inches or one in 12 inches. And with the old muzzleloaders and different ball cartridges, one in 48 or even one in 60 was enough to stabilize that round ball. So we're talking high, high spin rates. Now, why would they go so fast? The idea with this 8.6 is to shoot a really big, long, heavy bullet. The 8.6 blackout started as a 6.5 Creedmoor. They shortened the case. They necked it up to take a 338 diameter bullet, and they are pushing bullets as heavy as 300 grains from this short little minimal capacity, powder capacity cartridge. But they're not trying to drive them 3,000 feet per second. They're going the opposite direction. They're going low and slow. So they're probably hitting 1,000 feet per second with these big, heavy bullets. And then depending on the mass of the bullet and the momentum for the terminal effect. And it works. What you don't get, of course, is a flat trajectory and a lot of reach. But these are mostly being used in things, well, like uh, AR-10s is what they're really working with. And then they're taking out feral hogs, animal damage control operations. And a big bullet will do the job inside of fairly close ranges. So that's the whole idea there. And it really does sound fascinating. So that's why they need the faster twist. Velocity is a part of stabilizing the bullet. The twisting rate and the velocity of the bullet are required to get a fast enough spin. And the... uh, 
rate of spin is more important than the velocity until you really get low. You get your velocities down there at these crazy levels, and you do need a lot of spin, especially with a long bullet like a 300 grain 338. <laughs> so that's what's going on with the crazy twists. But of course, a one in three twist isn't going to do you any good in more traditional setups. It's just if anything, tear the bullet apart. And even with this one, they tell me that if you don't use, say, an all-copper bullet or something with a fairly significant stiff jacket, you can tear those apart. So if you go with a lighter weight bullet in it instead of that big 300 grain, and it's just a common cup and core, that can rip it apart. And the bullet doesn't come out as a slug. It comes out as shrapnel. Okay. Now here's, uh, well, this looks like our last question, and it's out of Texas from Tony. Ron, I love your podcast and keep sending out that information on cartridges, bullets, and firearms information related to conservation and hunting. I've been a mountain hunting deer and elk for the past three years in the Rockies, so I'm not a greenhorn to the ruggedness of mountain hunting. I truly enjoy the outdoors and the challenges of hunting big game in the mountains. Well, Tony, I hope you saw our recent release um, from Joseph. Joseph Von Benedict just put out a video on our channel on doing some scouting up in the mountains for his upcoming elk hunt. Took the horses and some of his boys up, and uh, that's a pretty good little show. You want to watch for that on scouting, whether you use your, your phone apps to look at all the maps and things for your scouting or to go out and actually get on the ground and scout and the advantages of both of those. Joseph covers that pretty nicely in that video. Now back to Tony's question. My question relates to the 338 Winchester Magnum. Oh good, we're going from a short little 338 to a big one. I already shoot a 300 Win Mag very well and I wanted to step up in caliber due to the energy shot distance and ammo bullet availability that the 338 Win Mag has. Although I am a owner and fan of the new Model 70 Pre-64 Winchester rifles, I came across a Ruger Hawkeye Alaskan in 338 Win Mag. Beautiful rifle, full claw extractor, Hogue stock, three position safety, Dropbox magazine, and the weight for me is just right. Sounds like you've already talked yourself into this one, Tony. I'm a hand loader and the components are readily available here in Texas and online for the 338 Win Mag because no one here in Texas shoots a cartridge that big unless they're headed to Africa. So tell me more about monolithic bullets and Hornaday's ELDX bullets in the 338 Win Mag. Also include traditional A-frame and partition bullets for the 338 for elk, caribou, and bear. Can these new bullet technologies improve on a goodie but oldie? How can I maximize this rifle and cartridge to meet today's expectations? What are your thoughts, opinions? I'm excited about this new caliber in my options for the mountains in Alaska. Or am I getting excited about nothing and I need to look at the new 7mm PRC? Uh-oh, don't go there. Down the rabbit hole. Or the 300 PRC cartridges. Yeah, here we go. I also plan on taking this rifle one day to Alaska to hunt bear and moose if it all goes well. Ah, thanks for any uh, insights and perspectives. Okay, Tony, now slow down. You got all excited about this 338 Win Mag. Let's stick with it. Let's not go thinking about the new PRCs and getting all mixed up here. Any of these are going to work. This is the problem. They all work. Your old 300 Win Mag, well, I think you said it was. Yeah, 300 Win Mag, that works just as well. And I can show you ballistic numbers using certain loads and bullets that will make the 300 Win Mag be as effective as the 338 Win Mag, maybe even a bit more effective. But you could probably do the same thing with the 300 PRC and the 7 PRC. So don't go there. If you found a rifle that you like, and it sounds like you did, you're pretty excited about this 338. It has proven itself time and time again on the big bears and the big moose and the big eland and everything else. So if you love it, you're excited, go with it. Now, about those bullets, monolithic versus the Hornady ELDX. I am still a little, I don't know, torn on that ELDX because I, I hear from so many folks who say the ELDX bullet is outstanding and they love it. Obviously, it has a grand shape. I mean, it's optimized for ballistics performance, and that is going to keep your energy levels up. Minimize your drops, minimize your wind deflections, makes it easier to get your bullet on target. And that's kind of job one is to get the bullet where it belongs. But then once the bullet's there, 
What is the terminal performance? And this is where I hear conflicting stories. One guy will say, worked great, one shot and he was dead. Next guy will say, I made a perfect shot and the bullet failed, the animal got away, or I took another two shots to finish it off, and et cetera, et cetera. The bullet broke up. I just don't know what to think. A lot of bullets will do that. I mean, every bullet is potentially a failure, depending on the, the shot, the angle, the animal, so many different things. And I don't think it's fair to take one of those incidents and say, well, this is garbage bullet, it's worthless, don't even try it. You just don't know what all went on to make this not work perfectly. I've seen it happen with the monolithic all-copper hollow-point bullets. I've seen it happen with cup-and-core bullets. I've, I've seen it happen with the highest quality, bonded, thickly jacketed, partition-walled style bullets. It, it, the potential is there for all of it. You have to know your bullet and its limitations as well as your own and just go with it. I think you are going to have excellent success with your monolithic bullets in that 338. It's a hard-hitting, heavy caliber, and I think you're going to probably do almost as well with the ELDX. I think I would lean to the ELDX if I was assuming I was going to be taking longer-range shots with it. That has its advantages in what we already mentioned, which was the better ballistic performance of the bullet, but also you're going to retain more energy in the bullet downrange, but your velocities will have dropped to the point where you're going to be less susceptible to that bullet breaking up. And I think you're going to get deeper penetration because of that. Whereas with the monolithic bullets at longer ranges, you're starting to lose enough energy that that bullet might not fully expand and get those pedals ripping out the way they do so effectively at higher impact velocities. But if you're going to be taking your animals at 100 yards to 200 yards or even closer, I think you're going to want the mono metal bullet because of its integrity. It will stay in one piece at those higher impact velocities and penetrate deeply. And if you're bear hunting, you're probably going to be shooting closer. So there's where you want to work with your mono metal bullets. Um, a long range, oh, let's say you think you're maybe going to shoot a moose across a a big bog or a swamp or something at 300 yards, I think your ELDX is a good option. So one way or another, you're going to be compromising. So I think you are going to have to make the final decision on this. But uh, those are the things you want to think about, Tony. But take that 338 and love it for a while, and then you can add on a, a new 7 millimeter or 300 PRC in the future. I'm sure the companies that make them won't mind a bit. <laughs> All right. Once again, those are great questions, folks, and we really appreciate you sending them all in. Shane and Daryl and Gerard from Canada again. This is the second time he's appeared on our show. And Mark from Wisconsin and Tommy in Indiana, Vernon from Texas and Tony from Texas. Thank you all. Um, we'll just keep cranking these things out if you folks keep writing in. And if I got anything wrong, once again, straighten me out. More than happy to make corrections because I do not want to be giving bad advice. <laughs> this is Ron Spomer, Hunt Honest and Shoot Straight. We'll see you next time.